tonight on a very special episode of Nerds on History. Well, uh, what do you think? It's pretty big, huh? That's, wow. That is the biggest telescope I think I've actually set eyes on. Yeah, it's it's pretty nice. Wow. Yeah. Hey, what do those knobs do? Uh, that adjusts the focus. Really? Yeah, give it a try. Oh, wow. Yeah, I know. Huh. I know. Feels amazing. Ooh. Oh, that's awfully stimulating. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. What? Oh, guys. Ah. Maybe I'm in the wrong spot. Uh, <clears throat> I should I should go. Um, this is, this is this the nerd cave? It's No, it's not what it looks like. Well, actually, it is exactly what it looks like. Uh, I thought so. Welcome to Nerds on History. I'm Brian Moriarty. And I'm Eric Brickmont. Eric, it's hot in here. Yeah. But we're not taking off our clothes. No, 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 We've already had enough awkward moments of telescopes. We're not making this Agreed. Worse. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, but you know what it is close to? Oh, it's right. Your birthday. That's right. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. My birthday is coming up. I'm very excited about my birthday because I always celebrate the entire week leading up to the actual event. I used to celebrate the entire month and that just became way too expensive. So now I just celebrate the week leading up to my birthday. Yes. So I got my first present today, actually. And it's a big year. You are one year from oblivion. Thanks, Brian. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yes, I'm turning 29 years old. <laughs> Thanks, Brian. Appreciate that. Yeah. I, I don't know why I'm, I did that, because I'm also 29. I know. And, and you turned 29 before I did. It's it's actually kind of deprecating and self-deprecating at the same time that I, I would say that once you hit 30, you just... Anyway, slowly I'm proud of away. It. I'm proud um, of it. It's not that at all. Not that at all. I. It's fine. I already have enough gray um, to be at least 15 years older than I am. So that's fine. I just I, Everything's catching up to the gray hair. You're looking more the part, is what I you're am. saying. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But yeah. I, did, I told you, I got my first present today. That's right. You did. And it's amazing. It's the coolest hiking stick ever. And you know what I named it? Uh, oh, Moses? No. No, I did not name it Moses. However, I did take a picture of my infant child holding it, and then I texted it to every of the other nerds and told them. I was I missing think one a... small fact: that she was supposed to be in a basket. <laughs> well, holding the staff. Yeah. Logistically, I don't think that's possible. Anyway, but you, I did text. I think well, this is how Moses yeah. started his career. Yeah, I thought it was funny. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, no, I named it Teddy. Ah, yes. After Theodore Roosevelt. Right. Speak after... softly, but carry a big stick. Which is, I don't really speak softly, but I do now carry a big stick and that's you know yes that's half of it so that's that's not bad yes indeed yes well you know it's also a great gift listener feedback this week in listener feedback well done brian well yeah well well done you like that that was good and we worked in of course teddy roosevelt which just so happens to be what all of our listener feedback has been about uh, and we got Facebook in the we got uh, feedback in the email. We got it on Facebook. We got it all over the place. Agreed. So we're actually going to save most of that feedback for next week. That's right. Uh, this week we're going to focus on just one of those. Uh, we we rarely get negative feedback, and I really want to take the opportunity to to share it with you guys because it's it's really important. I think we've shown that we like to take take the good in with the bad. So this feedback comes from Chris, and the subject is, seriously? Message, my dear nerds, 
Although I love your show and I have been listening for more than a year, you guys really dropped the ball on your TR episode. Well, again, he does not mince words, does he? <laughs> you guys, especially Brian, got way too dreamy-eyed about a guy I think you should have done a little more research and presented the man in a more level, fair, and honest light. For starters, you made a big deal about him getting into Harvard after being homeschooled. TR was rich, and Harvard was a much bigger old boys club back then. Remember, George W. Bush got into Yale, and that doesn't make him smart. Secondly... No, it certainly does not. Secondly, you do not enlist in the army and become an officer. You get a commission. This may not seem like a big distinction to you, but as someone who did enlist in the Marine Corps in 2007, I can tell you uh, there, uh, there's a large difference. There, furthermore, his placement at the high rank again proves the nepotism and influence of his wealth. Not debating that. Nope. Uh, also, TR was not in it to serve in it for the glory, which you have found uh, had you have found had you consulted any of the primary source material. Mm, I think that's highly up to interpretation because I don't think Teddy Roosevelt ever went out and said, "Well, the only reason I signed up was because I wanted fame and glory." Yeah. So. Okay, I think that's an interpretation from historians, but okay, yeah. from this, some historians. This was a move that TR did for political reasons, as can be seen by his subs uh, subsequent tap by McKinley to be vice president on the ticket. All this can be excused by your excitement, but your defense of the Monroe Doctrine was deplorable. Well, hold on a second. I don't think we defended the Monroe Doctrine. No. I'm pretty sure we stated that it was pretty awful and that other presidents, later presidents, would continue to abuse it and abuse it in whole new ways. In fact, I'm, I'm pretty sure we acknowledge the fact that, you know, Roosevelt took advantage of it to get the Panama Canal built. So, I... Okay. okay. I, I'm pretty... I, 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 I don't continue. remember that part. Just because it was the status quo at the time does not make it okay. As I remember in your awesome episode about the Roma, persecuting Roma was the status quo of Eastern Europe for centuries. Yet you still found it morally just to criticize the practice. Although, Eric did attempt to add some shade of dissent during the episode, Brian basically said some people think this made him a warmonger, but not really because of the Monroe Doctrine. That's like me saying that a slave owner wasn't a racist just because slavery was legal at the time. It's morally incongruent and short-sighted of you to both to present TR during this period of his life as anything more than a, a warmonger, and your failure to point out his jingoistic tendencies almost made me cancel my Deuteronomy subscription. Okay, first of all, Chris, I didn't know what the word jingoistic meant, so I actually had to look it up in the dictionary. Uh, and it means one who is extremely patriotic, uh, basically to, to a negative fault. Uh, so I'll, I'll handle that in a second. Uh, the, jingo the, people, uh, in, the people in Cuba still remember the concentration camps that were set up there by the U.S. and the scorched earth tactics of T.R. and his cavalry um, may be seen by heroic to some, but the more socially conscious that are seen uh, as a black eye on American foreign policy. The Monroe Doctrine is a horrible policy, which anyone can see given out the last hundred years in Latin America, which I think we also mentioned. Yeah, in fact, we well. even talked about it on our History of Mexico episode about how bloody awful it was, too. Yeah, TR is responsible for catalyzing those atrocities. All that said, TR did do some worthwhile things, but the, without the proper mention of the horrible things you failed to put in, uh, in his career and life in a proper context for your listeners. Darren Carlin did a great episode on hardcore history on the Spanish-American War, which I recommend you listen to. I still love your show, and you guys kick ass most of the time, but jeesh, you really struck out on this one. Cheers, Christopher. All right. So, okay. 
Christopher, no one is disputing the the facts that you're giving. Absolutely, what the American military did in Cuba during the Spanish-American War uh, is by no means being applauded or, or supported as our position on this show. What we're talking about is that Teddy Roosevelt had cojones. That's all I'm talking about. That's all I was talking about, too. Yeah, and we were talking about the character <clears throat> of the individual, not... And I, and I get it. I understand. A lot of really horrible things were, were going on in that time. Uh, no one's disputing that. Yeah. But let's not also forget that, you know, the supposed warmonger also went out and did a lot of really great things in order to promote peace in the world. Chris, I need to explain something to you. And, and I'm going to be this... I'm going to say this as gently as I can. Because I'll be honest, some of this was got me a little heated uh, when I read it. But I'll be totally honest here. I get where you're coming from. I really do. And I can understand why this kind of these kind of things upset you. So I apologize for that, for getting overly excited about the, uh, the subject matter. However, I think as we all know, history is rarely ever black or white. And we all know that even the people we deplore did good things. So yes, not discrediting any of the bad things that TR did. He or was a part of, sure. Correct. He was obviously an imperfect human being. And I never wanted to say that I defended the Monroe Doctrine. I was putting it in context and justifying it in the context of what he was going for. I never said it was an okay foreign policy. No, it's not an okay foreign policy. And the way it has been abused before and after is obvious. I mean, nobody is, is disputing that. That is as plain on the face of, of any person who's had to suffer through a lot of the consequences, including many of the governments that have been overthrown as a result of it. So um, if we were a podcast that was not devoted to having balanced arguments, we wouldn't have read your, your piece of feedback. But in fact, we did. So there you have it. Well, thank you again, Chris, though, for your, for your patronage and for listening. We hope that you continue to keep on listening. Um, but you know what? Can we move on to something happier now? Yeah, because let's change the subject, please. It's my freaking birthday, and I want to... Sorry to bring it down. I want to nerd out, because it's my right. birthday. Well, in order to do that, we need a guest. We don't just need a guest. We need an expert nerd. A nerd that, in the context of the uh, of the Star Wars universe, would essentially be on par with Yoda. And uh, that's, that's who we have in, in the studio here for you folks, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I'd like to introduce my friend... Michael Kandershoff. Hello, Internet. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Hello back, Michael. Thank you for being on the show tonight. We really appreciate it. So, Michael, why are you here tonight? Well, I, I love Eric. And, you know, I, I jumped out of a cake for about five minutes ago in this really melty, hot Yeah, I was going to say, you know. I appreciate that, by the way. Yeah. Oh, oh, totally. Especially the buttercream, which, oh, you know, boom. you got to go with. Oh, yeah. 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 Everywhere. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, but I'm here to talk about telescopes and Yay. astronomy in general. Which I love. And let's talk a little bit about how we, we know each other, because uh, we both volunteer at a, uh, a location not too far away from here in San Jose, California. It's the greatest place on Earth. It really is. It's kind of like Disneyland for nerds. Uh, and that is uh, the James Lick Observatory at Mount Hamilton. And uh, we have been working together for a couple of years yeah, now. Yeah, two or three. Yeah. Uh, ever since I finally made my way back up to the mountain after a little bit of time away, uh, I've finally found the time to fit it back into my very busy life. But um, you were getting a degree when we first met, which you have since uh, succeeded in doing. Congratulations, by the way. Oh, thank you. And uh, please tell our listeners, what are your uh, credentials? Well, I have a very nice piece of paper, which is framed in a $10 Target frame. Oh, yeah. That says Bachelor of 
arts in <laughs> astrophysics from UC Berkeley. Love it. 80,000 piece of paper, $10 frame. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Only the best. Yeah. They should make piece of paper. If the world collapses, can we use our degrees as currency? Because seriously, considering how much money went into them, seems kind of worth it. Seems like it might make sense. Like, like an exchange depot would be set up and you just bring your diploma and you end up getting that amount back in money. Yeah, because you get to keep all the knowledge. You know, but, it's just like, that's a great but idea. But like, we got to talk, talk about post-apocalyptic universe here. Because if we're trading it for like fallout money, I don't want like $80,000 in bottle caps. I'd rather <laughs> just keep the piece of paper and trade it like chunk by chunk for you oh, know, what you I go. Yeah. And, and that, I think, pretty much uh, just sums up your nerd credentials right there. <laughs> yeah. You just run over it with perforated edge, and you just tear off little pieces yeah, exactly. as you go along. Exactly. That's funny. Um, but you did a lot of really very awesome stuff at, at Berkeley that I find super fascinating in the world of, of astronomy. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So um, I started doing research my freshman year after taking a few classes under Alex Filipenko. Um, Love him, by the way. Nah, you're, you'll see him. If you come to Lick, he's, he's, he's kind of like the poster boy for Lick. And he's also been on, you know, all of the space shows. He's been on Nova, the the universe. He's done, you know, online classes. He's been on the universe. He's been on the universe. Like That's he just sits on deal. it and lords over everybody. <laughs> <laughs> the universe on the the Discovery Channel. Um, and you know, he studies supernovae. And so I actually started doing my research at Lick um, on their telescopes because Lick is not only the premier place to learn about science; it's the premier place to do science That's right. in Northern California. That's right. Yeah, it makes so sense. I worked on, you know, taking pictures of supernovae with a with the forty inch, the one meter reflecting telescope, and I took spectra of uh, supernovae with the three meter telescope. Um, and I've gotten co-authored on several papers. In fact, I just got an email today saying I got co-authored on another two years after graduating. Awesome. Um, That's impressive for a baccalaureate degree. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I mean, especially considering that really all I did was push a couple buttons like at midnight. I mean, basically <laughs> what we're doing now, but in a much cooler room. Yeah. <laughs> in Literally. temperature. In yeah. temperature, not in, not in nerd factors. <laughs> recording a podcast, awesome. you're exploring the universe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I also worked on a few radio astronomy projects. I worked with uh, Dan Wertheimer, who started SETI, like the SETI, uh, Jodie Foster SETI. I met the, the scientist <laughs> who inspired Jodie Foster the character, not the actress. Um, wow. She did not use headphones to listen to Arecibo, though we'll talk about Arecibo later today. It's a very cool telescope. Cool. Um, but headphones don't plug into it. No. No, it really doesn't. Yeah. All right, fair enough. <laughs> well, awesome. That I mean, obviously you've you enjoyed school. <laughs> Astronomy is a passion of yours. Yeah, at the, at the deficit of my grades, I really did enjoy school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, that's what's more important, right? And... It's cool that you got your degree in something that you are, you... are you using that degree in your field of work now? I'm using it right now, but no. At the uh, the only time I get to use it at my job, unfortunately, is when I'm talking to people about astronomy. Okay. Um, and I think that an astronomy degree does, does a really good job of um, giving you like a technical mindset and an analytical way to solve problems. Um, so I do still highly recommend it to anybody who's interested in the subject. You know, don't just immediately run to an engineering or finance degree. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's funny because, I mean, to go on a, this is a very, very brief tangent, you know, there's been lots of articles now talking, uh, the New York Times actually just ran one a couple weeks ago about the value of a liberal arts education and how a lot of people are feeling like it's not worth it to go to college now. A lot of kids who are in high school because of the the astronomical, 
pun intended, costs uh, <laughs> that it costs to go there now. Well, what's the what's the value in it? But the truth of the matter is that if you have a liberal arts education, you know you are a well-rounded individual who still learns problem-solving, critical thinking skills, and to express themselves in a verbal and written manner that's much more eloquent than a kid who's coming out of just a high school, unless you went to like a prep school, you know. And, and to and not to not to belittle anybody, but more than most CS majors that I know. Sure. <laughs> yeah, sure, exactly. So um, there's lots of value to it. Now, you also happen to major in something that you loved, which is great. I got my degree in theater. Am I using it right now? Kind of. But I'm not making money at it, that's for sure. Right. Podcasting definitely is something I'm trying to make money at. Yeah, of that. The, the only time I'm ever telling people about Egypt is, again, at work to coworkers who probably don't want to hear it. It's like, true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You work as a as a business in business sales. I work yeah. as, you know, a teacher basically, yeah. which I mean th- does of course theatricality does nurture that field, but case in point, when you're passionate about something, that's just naturally going to form itself anyway. Exactly. So, and you'll find an outlet for it in life like nerds on history. Speaking of which, pushing back to Eric's passion and Mike's passion, let's dive in, shall we? Yes. So I've always been fascinated by telescopes. And when I was growing up as a child, my father, who you know, of course, who's, you know, one of the... the, Oh, he's the guru on that mountain. He kind of is. during volunteer nights, like, he's the guy you go to. (laughs) Everyone knows my dad, that's for sure. Um, He's, you know, been co-running the the volunteer program pretty much my whole life. I mean, uh, he's also the the president of the Halls Valley Amateur Astronomical Group, you know, and they... Uh, I've been doing stuff again since I was a baby. So I've been surrounded by telescopes my entire life. And I've always been fascinated just by the way they work and obviously by what they what they bring to you. And, you know, I, we had a, an old uh, refractor that we kept out in the backyard and we would take it out and uncover it. And, you know, it was it was good enough to, to get a nice, decent look of Saturn or Jupiter on a, on a good night with excellent seeing. And... Th- those memories of me being in the backyard in the dark or at a star party with dad and uh, those have stuck with me my entire life and that's one of the reasons why I keep going up to Mount Hamilton is because I love it I love sharing that with others and I like to you know have my kids have those same experiences so I brought my telescope out for the kids and they've all had that experience where they've gotten to look through and just had their minds blown and if it wasn't for you know what was a very simple invention of a spyglass we wouldn't really be where we are now. We're talking about, you know, just a little over 400 years ago uh, when that was done. And, and astronomy since then has just kind of exploded, right? So so let's talk about some of those earliest telescopes. Yeah, of course. So, you know, you, you kind of put the nail on the head that they were originally used as spyglasses. You know, a few uh, a few Dutch spectacle makers uh, are and credited. Pirates, though, actually, many pirates were Dutch, so it makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> they, they served the pirates. They were the quartermasters to the pirates uh, with their s- spectacles. And they ended up making, you know, the, the first, you know, just a, like two lenses in a tube. And that was their telescope. And, you know, they, they described it as something that could see things, you know, f- smaller and further away than the human eye could see. And that, that was really all they could do. I mean, I didn't even know the magnification factor. Makes sense, because scope refers to vision, and tele means far, so... Though, fun fact, and we're going to... We're, um, we'll, we'll skip ahead and come back, but that, that actually wasn't uh, the original name for it. When uh, Galileo improved on the design, he called it like a perspeculum. Um, that sounds had, way, more, way cooler. It sounds very, very um, steampunk. It, yeah. 
it kind of sounds like the thing that hangs in the back of your throat. It does. Yeah, a yeah. little bit. But it you can also sound like it could, be a, it could be a fungus <laughs> that you might have to, yeah. to get treated for as well. Oh, yeah. You get that case of perspeculum. You know, they just don't have hands. a cream that fixes it. Yeah. They just don't. You've got perspeculum stuck to both your hands. <laughs> Was that what I was witnessing? The growth of the perspeculum when I came into the nerd cave today? Oh, that's know. disgusting. I think that might arguably be the nerdiest thing we've ever said. And, and most podcast. disgusting thing at the same time, which I yes. think is fantastic. Um, yeah, like uh, Hans Lippersche, I think, is the is the one who filed the first patent for it. But yeah, was... and, and depending upon which Wikipedia article, I'm sorry, which textbook you look in... Um, <laughs> You know, it varies between him and, you know, like, two other folks. Right. Essentially, he beat somebody to the patent office, more or less. Right. Yeah. It was a technology that was being developed by multiple individuals, and everyone had a different contribution to it, and they all kind of coalesced eventually in a design that, like you had already mentioned, was improved upon by the very famous Galileo Galilei. Yeah, I mean, and, and, you know, Galileo was such a genius that he did his initial improvements in one night. He comes to Venice. It's uh, 1609. He comes to Venice, and they're showing off this thing, this this telescope, or this. I think it wasn't even a perspeculum at that point. I don't know what it was called, the spyglass. And he looks at it, and in one day improves upon it and presents it um, in front of the the Doge, the D O G E. How do you pronounce that? D O G E. Yeah, D O G E. It's it's a it's um it's a ta- it's a. Doge? Italian. Yeah. Doge. We'll go Doge. That's not Doge. Doge. But Duce would have been Duke. Right, right, right. right. Yeah. D-O-G-E. Which, so Doge. Which Venice would have had. That would have been a Duke of Venice. So. No, he, pronounced, he, 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 he presents it in front of the Doge in, in a full, you know, uh, you know, quorumed, like, Senate hearing. Presents it in front of the Doge, who, like, instantly doubles his salary. <laughs> um, and then he perfects it over the next year. And he gets it up to, like, you know, 33x magnification. Wow. Um, and that's when, you know, in 1610, he, he, he looks up at the sky, and, that, and that's when he discovers the, the Galilean moons, the, the four largest moons of Jupiter. Which he initially thinks are stars. Right, and, I mean... And, and describes as such, right? Exactly. And, and, you know, really, the only thing that differentiated planets from stars um, in the astronomer's eyes and in, and in the astrologer's eyes at that point was just its motion across the sky. The fact, that, right. the fact that it right. didn't, like, trace with the celestial sphere. And let's remember, at this time, the world's official view on it and the church's official view was that the Earth was the center of the universe and that all other planetary bodies, including, uh, and this, the sun, all revolved around the earth so just for clarification the doge was the chief magistrate in the former republics of venice and genoa right so he had all these guys there they were all there to check out and see what was going on so that's a, that's very impressive <laughs> yeah one day one day he's like i see this this is this is it's it's promising but it, it's crap here let me fix it for you in a night <laughs> yeah as most scientists tend to do we had a joke once where we wanted to do a video, which was uh, Galileo's PR specialist. Like, he, he, he brings everyone in to, to view it and says, oh, no, 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 don't worry about it. Everyone's going to love it. I know that you are still working on this, but I think you should announce now that uh, it's actually the Earth that revolves around the sun, that the Copernicus was right and that the heliocentric theory is exactly correct. Yeah. So d- announce it now. Everyone is going to love it. Yeah. And then the next scene is him under house arrest. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. And, you know, the funny thing is that there's a lot of, I think, misinformation about that whole 
debacle because yeah obviously that is what galileo was put in, in prison for you know he he defended actually his uh, stance about the heliocentric universe in the bible he actually used nature as a cause for that and that basically the whole geocentric idea of orbit is pretty much it was just old scientific logic it just it, there's no there was no biblical basis for it but it was just the accepted logic of the church right he he confirmed what per copernicus had su suspected uh not all too long before his time uh by observing essentially the the galilean moons revolving or i should say not revolving excuse me orbiting around jupiter and he realized also with that in his observation of the sun because he was seeing the sun in a way that nobody had before he was using a telescope to project the image of the sun onto a, a piece of parchment and watching as sunspots were not just appearing but also crossing the surface of the sun he realized the sun itself was also rotating uh, so now he has this perfect example of planetary motion in effect and he can use that to to well, prove and he, has, he has one more he has the phases of venus oh that's right yeah yes. so so you look at the moon you see phases you realize that it's orbiting the earth yeah you see the phases of another planet what is accepted to be another planet you yeah. realize that it must be going around something sure exactly and yeah there you have it um but he pissed off the pope well, he was also his friend yeah he was, just, he was actually his best friend yeah but he went way too far he did go too far but that's also why he was put under house arrest and not executed it's kind of like if okay so you're the pope you, okay. you be the Pope, and then I'll shocking. Just, I'll, I'll just be me. I'll, I'll just be Eric. So you're okay. Brian the Pope, and I'm Eric, and it's okay. like me writing a, a, a book saying, "Le Miserable" is the most overdone production in human history. Anyone who's ever been a part of it is complete and total sham. Your reaction? Um. Wow. Um. Hmm. You know. I have to disagree with you on that one. <laughs> um, death. Um, I want to kill you. But being that I am supposed to represent Christ, I'm going to show mercy. And I'm going to chain you to your room <laughs> until you die. There we go. So, listeners, yeah, the, that, that's the modern equivalent. If Brian was the Pope and I was just me, uh, that, that's pretty much what happened. That was a very, very restrained yes. approach to that. <laughs> Um, and you know the other thing that I think the reason why that even, that even took place to begin with, before we move forward, is just to think about that the church at this point was the, I mean it was essentially God on earth. That's how they, that's how they had positioned themselves at this point, and the church was facing a very dangerous point in time in its history where it was starting to realize that it couldn't be the source of all human knowledge, and right. it didn't want to give that up because it meant giving up some of its power. Yeah, as well. Uh, the Church of today is quite different. Oh, the Vatican Observatory is one of the best thank observatories you. Oh, in thank the you. world. Oh, I, I was going to finish this conversation by saying that the, the Vatican has actually officially, they brought in Stephen Hawking and yeah. officially like said that the Big Bang is actually like a candidate for creation, for the mechanism yeah. well, of creation. Charles Lemaitre was a Catholic monk. And he developed the idea of the Big Bang because it fit in line with Catholic teaching. Yep. But he was also an astrophysicist. You can have the two work together. There are Jesuit priests who are also astrophysicists. They work at Castel Gandolfo in the Vatical, the Vatic, Vatical, the Vatican Observatory. Can I just stop everyone for a moment? Best birthday 
ever. <laughs> oh, I Can thought I you were going to say best Catholic reference ever. I've, I've watched too. a lot of these. That too, which thus is making it, in part, yeah. best birthday ever. I, I, I can't quote him, but there is a priest who does work at Vatican Observatory who says, look, the Bible is a religious book. It doesn't do itself credit by trying to act like a science book. Simple as that. Yeah. Simple as that. There, Eric has said it before, and, and it bears repeating. Religion is the pursuit of truth. Science is the means by which we approach it. Well done. Verbatim at that. Yes, that that's exactly what I've always said. It's what my father's always said, and that's... Yeah, how and why. Yeah, that's and they, what we think it is. One doesn't need to answer the other, and the other doesn't need to Yeah, exactly. First. Yeah. So, obviously, Galileo did so much to propel the use of the telescope and, and to move it towards the heavens, uh, but he would not be the only one to make further improvements and advances on it. Uh, Kepler, Johannes Kepler, of course, uh, would yeah. would bring another big step forward, right? In addition to developing several laws on planetary motion. Oh yeah, yeah like he, well. the foundational laws on planetary yeah, motion. Yeah, basically, kind of laying the groundwork for astrophysics. Yeah, so. I mean, and, and yeah, and and you know, to a to a to a more short term extent, Newton's work. You know, because sure. Newton was the one who formally like created calculus to, to to come up with the equations for this motion just a small little thing just a little <laughs> oh, we're gonna get to newton in a second he did so many this little things doesn't work so i'm inventing a whole new form of math to make it work i call it calculus <laughs> well done, sir. Well done. <laughs> but yeah so kepler he actually kind of what we consider a refracting telescope which is really two lens and two lenses and an eyepiece is Kepler. Kepler's the one who actually kind of came up with that, the theoretical backing for a two-lens refracting telescope, which is, you know, probably the telescope that Eric had as a child. That's exactly um, it, yeah. It's, you know, it's older, much older, and much larger, you know, cousin, who's 300 times its size at Lick Observatory, um, built on those principles. Um, and, you know, he, he contributed of course to astronomy and then came up with these planetary laws based on his observations with the refracting telescope and in his honor we've now named uh one of the most productive space telescopes uh, in human history that is of course the the kepler planet finder uh in his honor yeah. and uh, even though it is no longer functioning at optimal uh, but it is functioning. It is functioning. I, I, I was surprised that thing so sorry can, can we can we can we sidestep into oh kepler? i think we kind of have kepler to for project? a moment yeah Go. Go we're, for it. We're nerding out like no one's business today, so go for it. Um, so the you know you got the Kepler experiment is one of the most elegantly simple, um, like astronomical missions we've ever partaken, especially you know in the last you know five ten years. Um, we sent a telescope. We sent a telescope into space to look at you know a chunk of the sky, nearby stars, and basically watch them dim, watch them twinkle slightly as a planet passes in front of them. And we just watched them for years. And just to clarify, this is a different twinkle than we would view from it, Earth when we're looking yes. through the atmosphere, yeah, right? Sorry, exactly. Yeah, yeah sorry. <laughs> I just want to make sure our <laughs> listeners understand subtle, the difference. Well, we yeah. launched it into space, so that twinkle is gone. Right. Um, yeah. We're just looking at very subtle dimming from a planet passing in front of the star. And from that, we found, you know, I think we're up to, what, dozens of, of, of Earth-sized candidates? Dozens and, of Earth size, and we have and hundreds now, upon hundreds of, of others. Oh yeah, we're something like fifteen hundred confirmed exoplanets, which is ridiculous. Which is also due to re mostly due to research outside of Berkeley. Hold. Sorry, hmm? I'm the novice here. I have I'm, I, you guys went a little too geek for me. I need, Sorry, I need, I need to reel it back in for a second. Exoplanet. Okay, so we have our planet, right? Earth, it's short for extrasolar planet. Right, and then we have the planets that orbit our star, but there's stars out there. 
elsewhere in the universe and elsewhere in our galaxy in, in more close proximity and they have their own planetary bodies that orbit them as well that's what we refer to as an exoplanet it's any planet outside of our solar system gotcha it's in its own solar system exactly basically. okay it's in its own cool its own little corner of the, of just, the, of the galaxy I, I just i hadn't quite heard it like described that way before so that's why I wanted okay to fair enough it, so yeah. yeah fair enough it's it's the nice short googly term for an alien planet yeah. exoplanet sounds way cooler though it does and it does right and you know and, and if you use exoplanet in a google or wikipedia search you won't get star wars or star trek that gets filtered out by using the word <laughs> exoplanet <laughs> well, no, you're not going to hear about rigel 7 <laughs> right and which you, is awesome, you're going to get you know if we need to use Great weather. You use like Star Trek and Star Wars. They've got you know they use more dramatic words than exoplanet. It's M class planets. And like all no, that, yeah. they first off they refer to every planet as a system. I don't know why that is, but then again, it's a galaxy, so there's more than one solar system. Well, planetary system is yeah. actually scientifically. Accurate. They'll also say you know this planet's in the outer rim, you know. Uh, so you know it's and then to be fair, we have planets in the outer rim too. I would okay. consider those Neptune well, and we are a planet Jupiter, technically in the outer rim. Aren't we? With our the Milky so- Way? our no. solar system is in the outer rim. Well, yeah, that's what but I But our planet say. is in the inner rim of our solar system. Fair enough. There are so many yeah. clarifications that need <laughs> to be made there's, tonight, Because there, there's different scope. Like, right. We have Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, and then we get kind of the asteroid belt, and then yeah. we get kind of the gas giants. So, right. so yeah. to, to put it in nice nerdy terms, we are in the outer rim from the Star Wars definition of outer rim, but we are on the inner rim in terms of Serenity and Firefly. Wow. Well freaking done. Correction, that was the nerdiest thing that we yes. said in this podcast. You do realize that in Firefly, Joss Wheaton's whole concept of all the planets that they go and visit is more or less in a solar system. Yeah, the, the, the whole point is that the gentrification actually comes from the um, success at terraforming. So the ones that are terraformed well become the, the rich Earth-like planets, and the ones that are not become these dust bowls. Yeah, yeah. I, I just love the uh, the Western approach because it is very much like the Western was our frontier, right? And yeah. this is it's literally making space a real frontier, uh, as opposed to Gene Roddenberry's metaphorical frontier. This was a real frontier. Yeah, to 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 bring it back to telescopes. Sorry, yeah, I got <laughs> it. Segway segue time. Segway alert. <laughs> um, what's amazing about astronomy is that you know it is a frontier science. You know, because we have to use telescopes to observe everything, everything is so separated in space and time. I mean, it, it's like it's like archaeology or history, you know, in that <laughs> wow, we, we, don't, we don't have everything in a lab with us. It's all light years and parsecs and That's mega right. parsecs away. Well, Wait, parsec is an actual yes, unit it is. of measurement? It's a unit of distance, not time. Han yes. Solo said it wrong. Ah. You can't make a Kessel run in less than 12 parsecs unless, of course, your path is you know uh, not set so he was a really efficient kessel run is is what he really said <laughs> yeah maybe running the kessel was like a metaphor for you know like i don't know ruining the engine uh kessel's a planet oh uh, kessel's a planet oh yeah yeah they mine, Never mind. they mined spice there which is what he was smuggling that's why he made the kessel run brian wow i can't believe i just i showed told my... you you're going up against yoda no kidding He's, he's making his Padawans today. You are the Grandmaster Nerd, sir. Oh. Namaste. We bow namaste. to you. We bow to you. I did just do the, the, the namaste stance. You yes. did. You did. I can vouch for that. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about Newton now. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. The fig dude. Oh. Boo, Brian. Boo. Oh, you booing me for I'm making boo- a bad pun? 
It's that was, that was a pun. Day, whoa, whoa, and it whoa, whoa, is whoa, the whoa, worst whoa. of puns. That was not a pun. Let's just be clear. That was not a true play on words. That was you talking about a commercial. That's all I'm saying. A cookie's a cookie, but Newton's are fruit and cake. <laughs> okay, you've redeemed yourself. Well done. <laughs> Uh, okay, let, let's talk about the actual man, not, not the tasty treat. Uh, Sir Isaac Newton, amazing person. Oh, the god among men. And somebody who was just so uh, conflicted. I don't know how else to describe well, no, he's, him. He's, he's all over the place. Yeah, he's, 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 he's a true renaissance man, like by a polymath. Like, the, like you look at polymath, you got, you know, um, Da Vinci... Newton, I mean, even Einstein wasn't as much of a polymath as, yeah. as Newton is. I mean... Yeah. And look, not only that, but one of the most reluctant geniuses in the world. Like, mm, if he didn't yeah. have people supporting him and pushing him along, he would not have been able to do what he did, mm. really. This is also a point in time where it was not uncommon for an artisan to be an engineer. In fact, the term the artisan engineer was one word. We didn't separate the two until later. Right. So, he lives to this, to this standard, as did Da Vinci. Uh, but... In this context of this episode, what is Newton best known for? The reflecting telescope. Now, so let's, of course, because of the prism, yes. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about reflecting actually, or refracting for a moment, right? Well, actually, can, can I address yeah. what he said? Because yeah. that's exactly right. He actually invented the reflecting telescope to prove his theory of color. Because he had a theory that the reason why you had... it was, I'm sure it was completely intentional, Brian. I, I remember reading it somewhere, but it, it, was, it, was more, it was more it was more below the surface. It just kind of, I threw it in there and I realized it's relevant somehow. <laughs> but um, when you shine light through a lens, because, you know, the lens is different thickness at different points and, you know, the index of refraction is slightly less, it's, it's different for different colors, you get an aberration. And Newton postulated that this is because white light separates into different colors. And so he... He then postulated, of course, that a mirror, because you don't actually refract light through a mirror, um, you know, would not have this aberration. And so the the reflecting telescope was partially to prove his theory of color. Wow. Well done, sir. Oh, yeah. And it, it revolutionized where we would go with telescopes in the future. Yeah, and, and that's the interesting thing, is it came out only 50 years after the refracting telescope. You know, he only came up with it, what, 1660s? Um... And, but 1668, I believe it 1668. was. Yeah, that's the, the first functioning reflecting telescope was created. And we didn't start using them for true astronomy, you know, for another, what? Couple hundred yeah, years. Yeah, 250, 250 years or so. Yeah, which is crazy when you think about every major uh, telescope today that is, you know, collecting uh, visible light. Right, every is, optical telescope. Every optical telescope is uh, a reflecting telescope if mm -hmm. it's being made. I mean, it has to be. Forward. You cannot, yeah. you literally cannot make a lens that big. I mean, yeah. that, that's why we, we stopped making refracting telescopes. That's right. But let, let, let's explain a little bit between, about how these two telescopes work, because we've talked a little bit about refractors already. So how exactly does a refractor work? It's really hard to give this spiel without, like, hands. In, well, like, my hands aren't gone, but, you know, like, I can't Anyway, so listeners, I can't gesticulate. Unless you're driving or, or operating uh, heavy machinery, close your eyes and visualize now with Michael. Right, exactly. Thank you. That was, a, that was great. Um, <laughs> I just love This is very hard to say without hands. Continue. <laughs> 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 continue. Oh, no, it's, it's cool. Um, so imagine, if you will, um, a lens. And a, a refracting telescope basically is you build a tube around the lens to the point where... You have to have basically like essentially two focal lengths of tube 
um, in order for the light to come in, hit the lens, uh, focus, hit a second lens, focus again, and hit your eyepiece. So you have to have a really long tube. Um, and not only that, but like I said, the, the lens introduces a, a color aberration, chromatic aberration. Um, a reflecting telescope, however, um, is just a mirror, and it's uh, typically it's a concave mirror, so it looks like a bowl, curves curves inward, and uh, the light hits it and gathers back up at a at a focal point in the middle of the tube. So therefore, you need a you don't need as long of a tube, and this is one of the main reasons why reflecting telescopes took off is because you need much less material to build a functioning reflecting telescope. Mm, exactly now. There are many ways to build a reflecting telescope. We were talking before the podcast, you know, Brian said, oh, how many different types of telescopes are there? <laughs> uh, there are a lot if you're talking about all wavelengths of light, but even if you're talking about just optical and just reflecting, there's several different types of foci. And the one Newton pioneered um, actually has the light collecting and then hitting a flat secondary mirror that's turned on axis, so the light actually leaves the tube so you can put an eyepiece you know, right outside of it. Basically, it bounces it. Yeah, it bounces it to the side. You know, kind of yeah. like that nice trick shot in putt-putt golf. Yeah. Uh, what about uh, Lorient Cassegrain? So the Cassegrain telescope, um, you have a secondary mirror similar. It's actually almost the exact same position as Newton's, but it's another... But that one is a slightly convex mirror, and it actually causes the light to focus in the back of the telescope. Um, so your eyepiece is actually at the bottom of the telescope. Now that means, that makes a Cassegrain much better for like your large, heavy, um, science-y sort of telescopes. Whereas <laughs> your your nice little tabletop telescope is going to be uh, typically a, Newton, a, a Newtonian. Newtonian focus. So you yeah. can actually, you know, because it's at nice standing height. Right? Awesome. So there Very you cool. go, folks. Difference between a Newtonian and a Cassegrain. There you oh, but go. you didn't talk about Coudet. You we didn't, didn't talk we, about Coudet. Coudet is the coolest <laughs> focus. You guys are geeking out so hard. <laughs> okay, the Coudet focus is a, has a third mirror. Is there anything to do with the coup de gras? No. It is a coup de gras. <laughs> <laughs> it is, isn't it? <laughs> it really is a, the coup de gras of reflecting telescopes. It has a third mirror where your eyepiece would be at a Cassegrain focus. So basically the light bounces up, bounces back down. And then this mirror actually acts kind of like the secondary mirror Newtonian telescope and bounces it off completely out of the telescope. So now you can have these really cool instruments. You can have these giant room-sized cameras that collect the light and do processing because some of the more modern um, processing tools and modern cameras can't fit on a telescope without ripping off the mirror. So they all have oh. to sit off-site. So the Coudet focus lets you actually have, you know... Um, a giant like laser we have a giant laser in um at lick observatory um near the 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 process the image processing some of the imp image processing stuff oh i should knock that so what i find fascinating though is even though obviously as we've we've highlighted the reflecting telescope is the the better of the two when it really comes to producing a great image they just didn't have the kind of reflective surfaces that they needed to back in the 1600s to really be able to produce something that was large enough, that was going to be powerful enough, and that was going to be, you know, a, a good a good choice. That wouldn't come about until much later when we developed uh, different finishes for these reflective yeah, I mean, surfaces. And we, and we went through several iterations. I mean, Newton's was um, a metal alloy because you couldn't actually make glass, you know, into the right shape easily. So you had to use, you know, a metal alloy and kind of grind it. Um, 
he actually I forgot the grinding technique but there's a belief that Newton actually pioneered that as well um, so he invented a form of math to prove his theories he invented a prism to prove his theories and he invented a whole other form of shaping metal to do mm-hmm. yeah pretty much I'm going to say he's kind of like the Steve Jobs of the 17th century <laughs> and 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 he had the same kind of draconian dark side too. I mean, his his big claim to fame was counterfeiting, and he had hundreds of people hung for making counterfeit um, currency. Things well, you didn't know, like we discovered with with Teddy Roosevelt. There's pros and cons to everything. See, I'm curtailing <laughs> the inevitable angry feedback. That's <laughs> How dare you highlight all of his achievements? He was a bastard. Um, anyway. <laughs> bastard coated bastard with bastard filling. <laughs> so, so regardless, we'll talk about reflecting telescopes later because they, when we bring it into the more modern era, that's where we're going to really focus. These refracting telescopes, though, that continue to be produced, uh, some of them were just kind of ridiculous, right? Because the focal lights were not quite worked out just right. Well, right? I mean, some of them were ridiculously long. Like there's well, 150 there, feet. So there's a reason for that, and it's it's. It's actually, if you if you look if you think about it, it's really an effect of parallax, which is another astronomical term. But basically, it's um, if you go out far enough, um, you know the kind of difference in um, diffraction of the different light of the different uh, wavelengths of light is lessened. So you need a really long focal length in order to get rid of that chromatic aberration we talked about. Gotcha. So that's that's why you have these obnoxiously long focal lengths. Um, there's actually, and this is actually something I didn't know until I started doing research uh, to come on the show, is there's a type of telescope called an aerial telescope, where to make the focal length as long as possible, they did away with the tube, and basically just strapped the lens on top of a really long pole, and you kind of had to hope that you can look through it and not accidentally tip it over when you were pointing it. Wow. That's ridiculous. It's insane. Like, you should look at diagrams. I mean, it looks like, like a tilt-a-whirl, because they have, like, weird balancing things oh to my keep God. it level and stuff. How big were the lenses that we were talking about? Uh, I have no idea. They were they were as big as, you know, in the, in the contemporary, you know, uh, tube refracting telescopes of the time. So, you know, they could be... Oh, they could be, uh, I think I think I heard they were about maybe a foot, foot and a half. So we're talking a couple hundred pounds. Yeah, yeah. Glass just suspended. Wow, that's crazy. Around, you know, hundreds of feet high. That's, that's, that could easily nice. kill somebody. Oh, easily, yeah. And, you know, destroy a livelihood. You know, people made their careers making, like, two lenses. Like, sure. like their yeah. lifetime was oh, yeah. two lenses. Like, the one at Lick, I think, was, that was their company was made the lenses for the Great Lick Refractor yeah. and maintained it. Well, well, at least one of them was intact. But yeah. that's for another story. <laughs> um, so, and that would continue for hundreds of years, right? Yeah. The the refracting telescope would continue to be the the primary telescope that was being built and being built larger and larger and larger, right? Because we wanted to have as much collecting power as possible to be able to see further and further into our universe. And by doing so, we were discovering all sorts of fascinating things that we just didn't have a way of putting into context quite yet. Um, but, you know... Well, we were reviewing early galaxies, not even totally yep. or I fully mean, understand what they until, were. It wasn't until Hubble at the beginning of the 20th century that we had a notion of a of a true universe being, you know, many, many, many millions of galaxies. Hubble was the first to propose that. And you want to, Brian, you know what Hubble really owes his success to? Charles Lemaitre? No, a 100-inch hooker. What? <laughs> Explain. The 100-inch hooker telescope, that is. Oh! oh. 
That was bad. I was going to say, Hubble also owed his success to Charles Lamatua because he was the one who proved it plausible. Okay, yes, but then that wouldn't have jived with my joke. And so I initially dismissed it to make a fine. It's the only thing I can contribute to this episode <laughs> at this point. Well, okay, we're not quite there yet because that's another reflecting telescope. Yeah. But you know what? Normally, right, we have the, the vortex come on in by this point and we have a, an advertisement that is done. Uh, but I actually put up a vortex inhibitor. Is uh, that is that vortex fair use? I always wondered about that vortex. Like It's... Sure it is. Um... <laughs> It's fair use enough, right? Yeah. I think so. Yeah, it's a few seconds long. Uh, anyway, our Vortex uh, inhibitor, which also doubles as an air conditioner. Uh, you can see it right over there. That big cil- cylinder on top of it, that's the inhibitor. Yeah. Uh, it's in place today because we actually have a very special announcement that we want to make instead of one of our usual affiliate advertisements. Call uh, to action. A call to action, absolutely. And this is surrounding a institution that we've talked about a couple of times already on the episode uh, you're wearing a t-shirt for it. I have a t-shirt that I wore yesterday for it, actually. It glows uh, in the dark. Yeah, it glows. Oh, oh does it really? It oh, I didn't know those ones glow in the dark. Yeah, I'm going to have to get one of those then. Uh, it's a very cool design, actually. Yeah. It's very comic booky. Yeah, yeah. It's it's the it's the refractor from, like, the... Like, from the you're back You're going to shoot it. Yeah, yeah you're yeah, going to yeah. shoot a death ray at Alderaan. <laughs> exactly. That's what it looks like, yeah. Um, we're like talking Star about... Steampunk. Yeah. We're talking about Lick Observatory. Mm-hmm. The oldest mountaintop... Permanent, I should say, mountaintop observatory in the world. Yeah, I mean, it, it proved so many things we kind of take for granted in modern astronomy. Yeah. Um, like a remote mountainside observatory. They were on, you know, rich people's houses and on top of, you know, astronomy buildings at universities until Lick... Or really, the people who who talked sense into Lick, uh, told him to spend his his fortune on building the observatory. Um, Yeah, exactly. We'll we'll talk about that in a minute, because we do want to address some of of Lick's uh, fascinating history. Uh, But right now, this important historical site, and also incredibly active scientific site, uh, is in danger of being shut down. Uh, The the office of the president at uh, UC, in the UC system, uh, is considering mothballing the observatory and uh, cutting its funding and this is the uh, the first time anything like this is, has really escalated to this point and happened for lick observatory and we're obviously a bit worried about this and this is in the i mean the lick observatory is almost as old as the uc system is period oh, i mean yeah i mean it 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 was gifted to the university of california meaning the one campus the, in yeah. berkeley i mean this thing was the Lick Refractor has 1888 stamped on it, and the observatory is not much is older than that. Yeah, the start of construction in 1880. So, you know, this has been around for, like Brian said, pretty much as long as the UC system has been in existence, and it is performing some of the most important scientific research in the field of astronomy right now. In fact, if it wasn't for Lick Observatory, adaptive optics would probably not be where it is right now. If it was, it would. Have... Yeah, I mean, so ad- adaptive optics. Um... You know, it, it it lets people like me, they put me, you may not know me, but they put me in control of a telescope, a, a multi-million dollar piece of technology that I could have very easily run into the ground. Um, they tr- they This is a proving ground for undergraduates is what I'm saying. Um, yeah. We break our teeth in on um, two world-class optical telescopes. And, you know, most undergraduates don't get that experience. That's and right. And they get it here because of Lick Observatory. And we have telescopes on the mountain right now that are unique in their design and that they are completely and totally automated. Yeah, we have we have cyborg or Borg telescopes. 
you know, we have um, one that searches for supernovae, and that's led by uh, my former professor, Alex Filipenko, and Jeff Marcy, one of the foremost exoplanet researchers. The, the grandfather of exoplanet oh, I mean, he, discoveries, yeah, really. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Before Kepler went up, and he was one of the main scientists analyzing yeah. Kepler. Before... And, and for the ardent Star Trek fans out there, this is a good type of Borg, not a bad type of Borg. Correct. Oh, sorry, yeah. yes. Borg, yes. 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 Good, good, yes. good. It does good, not want to assimilate, it just wants to observe. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Um, but Jeff Marcy, you know, discovered like 90% of the planets that had been discovered before the Kepler mission went up. Um, and he has, he sees the value in Lick Observatory and Alex Filipenko sees the value in Lick Observatory. And of course we see the value in Lick Observatory. And of course, uh, Sandra, Sandra Faber as well. Oh, Sandra Faber. Of course. Um, Sorry. Some of the world class, some of the world's leading astronomers, uh, who have pioneered this field have spent countless hours at Lick Observatory. And continue to. And continue to. And it is in danger of being shut down. So listeners, this is the time for you to act. Uh, we need to save Lick Observatory. And there are a few different ways that, that you can do this. Uh, one is to take a very direct approach. And go ahead and just email the uh, the office of the president for the California University system. Do it. Yeah. Why not? It's not going to hurt anything. Let them know that you want an organization that has contributed so much to continue to contribute. Uh, What's the address? I don't actually know. <laughs> you didn't get it? Well, while Eric's looking this up, let me explain just a little bit of why you want to email the president. Uh, in any state-run college system, it's the administration that controls how all money is uh, flows in the system, including their own salaries. So. Um, if you were being that I am a graduate of another state-run school from the CSU system, uh, I have seen firsthand the mismanagement of uh, money that is meant for education, like such a thing as Lick Observatory, who, which obviously has been instrumental in the forwarding of science. Mm -hmm. And continues to be. We can't stress this enough. It is an active research facility. Yes. And really, honestly, one of the few in Northern California. I mean, you have Palomar and SoCal, and you have nothing up here. <laughs> yeah. I have that email now. If you want to email president at ucop.edu. Once again, that's president at ucp, sorry, ucop.edu. Uh, you, can, you can get in direct contact with them there. Uh, and tell them that uh, you love Lick Observatory. Maybe you've never actually been there. Maybe you are in a whole other planet uh, <laughs> and listening well, to this. Well, you know what? I, honestly, here, here's what I would suggest to a, a listener who wants to support Lick Observatory and is in the area and can easily get there. Go there first. I don't want anyone to support something that they, you know, have not experienced firsthand if, if they have the opportunity yeah. to. Folks, and let's, let's be totally honest here. The current president of the UC system is Janet Napolitano, the former... Uh, Secretary of Homeland Security. Yes. She is new to the system. She's inheriting these issues. She may not be aware of these issues. Mm -hmm. Let's educate yes. her on these issues. Yeah, oh, let, definitely. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I think that there's a, an opportunity for you. And, and you know, quite to Michael's point, sure, I'm saying don't you don't have to necessarily say that you love the institution without actually visiting it. But doing a simple uh, Google search will provide you with more than enough information to show you why it's important. And that if you support scientific endeavors, whether they are here or anywhere in the world, this should be something that is important. And, and I would love for you to be able to to act on it. And, and hell, shameless plug part two. Uh, watch our next week's episode. Will Lick Observatory survive its debacle? 
Will the nerds be able to continue to talk about their love of telescopes? Will Brian understand what the hell is going on? Tune in next week, same nerd time, same nerd channel, nerdonomy.com. You should clean that up. Yeah.